0: We have been in a uh, series of messages lately looking at the idea of what it would have been like to experience Jesus while he was alive without knowing how the story was going to end. How would people have received him? How would they have perceived or responded to His message, his words, his miracles, his actions. And we've looked at various facets of this perspective of people interacting with Jesus who did not know what we know, which is how the story ends. And so today, I want us to try to take a look at the resurrection from the vantage point of those who were there and didn't really understand what was going on until it was explained to them. And so how would this mourning have been received by those who were there? How would they have understood what happened? How would they have responded to the events that unfolded? And so I'm going to take you through a, a few snapshots from some of the Gospels of this day and following day's as people encountered the risen Christ and tried to wrestle with what was going on, what does this mean? What what happened? And so, after the the in the Gospel of Luke, the author tells us that after the crucifixion, uh, a wealthy Jewish citizen of Jerusalem uh, took the body of Jesus to a tomb and laid him there and that the Jewish and Roman authorities were, um, were worried about the security of that tomb and so they rolled uh, a large stone in front of the tomb. Uh, there would have been a, a groove cut in the rock in front of the tomb and when this big kind of disc fell into that groove it would have been Uh, Very difficult to move without a team of of people and some leverage, etc. And so, Jesus is laid in this tomb. And some of the women in his following uh, followed Nicodemus to that grave and saw where he was laid. And they decided that since the Sabbath was coming, they would just wait. And when the Sabbath was over on, the mor- on Sunday morning, they would get up early, go to his grave, and show respect to his remains and put a little perfume. And just for people who might want to go and say goodbye or spend time with his body, uh, it was just a typical sign of respect in Jewish life for the dead. And so that's where we pick up in Luke chapter 24, verse 1. And we'll just kind of read that and ask the question, what would they have seen? How would they have perceived or understood what they saw? And what was the reaction they got when they told others? Luke 24, starting in verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, who told these things to the apostles but these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them now I want to just jump over to a, a clip out of that's uh, that we find at the end of the gospel of Mark and this is a, a very old summary of what happened over the course of the, the days, moments and days following the resurrection. Um, but we find this in the 16th chapter of the gospel of Mark, beginning in verse 10. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, He appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country, and they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. So you may uh, have detected a theme in some of these verses so far. Uh, The unbelievable is being alleged that The man that they had all seen dead is now alive. And as the reports begin to come in to the apostles, none of them believe it. They can't wrap their minds around what happened. Um, Let's look into the Gospel of John, chapter 20. I'm going to read two clips Verses 19, 19 through 21, and just for the sake of space, verses 24 through 28, um, and see if we don't see another, uh, some more glimpses into what's going on through these words. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace. Peace. Be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, "Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you." Now Thomas, one of the twelve, one of the twelve called the Twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, "We have seen the Lord." But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The beginning point of our faith is. At face value, a ridiculous claim that someone who had passed away got up out of their tomb and walked away. We forget because this idea is at the center. Of our faith, how truly unbelievable this event was to the very first people to witness it. Um, Other accounts in the Gospels talk about the women having no idea what's going on. And they want to know, like, where did you take him? They they see actually Jesus. And and they think he's the gardener at this cemetery, and they turn to him and say, "Where, Where did you just tell us where you took him? We just want to go mourn. And Jesus eventually reveals himself to them. But even seeing the empty tomb was not enough, it took a face to face, flesh to flesh encounter with the risen Christ to bring all of his closest followers to belief. We are so familiar with the story. I think we just go racing past this moment on that Sunday morning where no one really understood what was going on. And virtually no one believed the impossible had just taken place. What does this claim say to us? What does it call out of us? This claim by these first century peasants that someone was risen from the dead. What does it mean for us? Well, the first thing I want to talk about is, from these passages is this call that God is placing upon us to trust. To trust this claim, to trust this um, episode as true, as real, as actually having transpired. And the first point at which we are called to trust is to trust in the witnesses themselves, those who saw these events. Um, It is shocking, really, and actually pretty good evidence that the story is not made up because in the first century, (laughs) this is going to sound horrible to some of you, uh, well, it should sound horrible to all of you, actually. Um, but in, in a court of law, a woman's testimony was not deemed uh, suitable for evidence. So even if a woman was a first-hand witness of a crime, uh, she, and she, even if she did testify, the rebuttal from the other side would be, Your Honor, let's just consider that a woman has given this testimony. And the, and the judge would have said, oh, you're right, that's crazy, I'm, you know, I'll just dismiss this altogether. Uh, that's, that's the standing that a woman's testimony would have had in the first century. Um, and so if the disciples just made this up, I think they would have sent... In their fabricated story, someone with a little more credibility to the graveside. Uh, maybe Nicodemus, the respected member of Jewish society who had buried him in the first place. But the people who show up first are the very people Jesus is most interested in. The ones who are dismissed by credible society, the ones who don't have a voice ones who matter to him. And what do they claim? These women come back to the to the men, as I pointed out to the kids, to the brave, brave men who are hiding in fear. Um and in 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 their defense, women would not have been at risk of being executed. So they had a little more freedom in that respect to move about and go to the tomb. And uh, so, anyway, um, what do they claim? Let's look at the claim that these women make. At first, uh, Mark sixteen eleven, um, that he was alive and had been seen by them. That's what they claim that Jesus was alive and they had seen him. Um, they They are claiming that we should believe the unbelievable, that we should believe something that is actually impossible, that we should believe something that completely contradicts everything we know belief is somehow supposed to trump our reason and our logic. And so the claim itself is at face value ridiculous. It's, it's too impossible to be fiction. You don't just make this up. This is a massive claim. Um, and while it's too impossible to be fiction, it's too important to be dismissed. At first, the claim is not believed. But can you imagine um, what's going on in your mind as you're dismissing these first witnesses and, and they come in and they report and they say, We saw him, he's alive. And your first reaction is, You're nuts. You're seeing things. Your grief has twisted your uh, mind and your vision and everything else. And please, please stop telling me this, right? Um, It's too much. It's too good to be true. So the claim itself bears some... Wait, I mean, if you were trying to get people to believe something, this would be about the last thing you would want to make up. Um, We're to look at the claim made by these first witnesses, and we're to look at the change that takes place from the time the empty tomb is discovered, and, well, the rest of human history, if you will. Look at the change. Um, Smitty, ethnically, where are you from? Germany. Germany? You ever lived in Germany? No. What are you doing here? Sometimes Sometimes listening to me, you wonder. Okay. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Touché. Should have picked on somebody else. Hey, Danny. Está bien. Está bien. No te preocupes. Estás aceptado. Como hermano. So we are a gathering of mutts. Don't bark. There's, there's one in here. Yeah, that's our uh, that's our service dog and training. So we like that dog. Um, we are an assemblage of we're, we are the island of misfit toys, aren't we? If I can be, there you go. There you go. Okay, what are we doing here? You, this assembly of. The crazy Irish guy and his beautiful lovely wife, and the German guy and his lovely wife, and what are you? Pure mutt, I think. (laughs) Just What is Russell? Is that Irish? Scottish? Okay. All right. So all of us make up this family of God, this collection of people that should not be together. and as such, this is even a thank you. I got an amen. This, us, we are evidence of this change that took place that morning. That God would take this band of fearful, depressed um, followers. Who otherwise would have scattered back to their uh, obscure lives. And what does he say to them? Uh, John twenty nineteen. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Um okay. If you're looking for the team to send out on the mission. These are not the Navy SEALs of the ancient world. Okay? Uh, Peter denied him three times, just like two nights ago. Maybe three. All right? Peter, his strongest follower, was like, nope, no idea. When he needed them the most, and he said to his closest four or five, just stay with me and pray, they fell asleep. Virtually everyone, except for the women, abandoned him at the cross. Um, John might have showed up at some point for a moment. Um, these people blew it at every level. They were not your crack team of go-getters. And the other accounts tell us that by, by the time the next couple of weeks would unfold, uh, they had gone back to fishing. Some of them had just returned to their previous occupations. They'd given up on Jesus as Messiah. And so, let's look at this change from grief and fear, a people defined by grief and fear, to a people of courage, willing to undergo martyrdom, Of the 11 apostles that remain at this point, at least 10 of them die as martyrs, being executed by the Roman officials or by Jewish authorities for their faith. Um, These men are changed, these women are changed all of us are changed by having met the resurrected Christ, the one who came and did what was impossible. Um, Those who denied him and deserted him at his darkest hour were the very ones that he says, yes, those are mine. Those are the ones I want. Let me show you what change looks like. And so, we are to trust those witnesses and so also we are to trust the pattern that is reinforced in this whole narrative. This story tells the story of God and it has his fingerprint on every page. There's only one who would come up with an ending like this. And it's the God of love. The Bible tells us that God is love, and love is not afraid to sacrifice. It's not afraid to give of itself. It's not afraid to go to the cross. Jesus knew that his death would bring life. Nobody else in his following understood this. Even though he had explained it to them in advance, they didn't get it. They, like us, thought that victory comes in strength and it does. But it's the strength of love. A pattern that God has indelibly etched on the hearts of his people since time immemorial. Since Adam and Eve blew it in the garden and had to leave and God came to them and sacrificed an animal and covered them with its skin, as if to say, I've got you. Your sin brings about death, but I've have you covered. And the ultimate expression of that is the cross, where Jesus says to us, my death will cover you. Through this, you will have life. He knew what his death would bring, and he endured the pain for you, for you. we, We hear often, Jesus died to forgive us of our sins. I don't think we hear often enough in our own hearts, Jesus died for me. He did this for me, for my forgiveness, for my redemption, for My good. Love is not afraid to sacrifice, and love always finds a way to prevail. That Friday, when the sky went dark and Jesus uttered his final words on earth, um, he said, It is finished. Those were his dying words. And everyone who was there thought it was over. They thought that this one who would be the Messiah was done. They thought the movement was finished. Um, They saw no hope. And Sunday morning, a handful of women saw something they could not explain. Grave clothes laying in an empty tomb. And they began, they were the first of us to realize that love had figured out a way to prevail over sin and death. Jesus died to bring us redemption. And he rose from the grave to bring us hope. That there are no impossibles with God. That life is something so much more than what we have here and now. That despair has been overcome by love. It's a pattern. And God wants us to trust it. So that even when we feel like a day is defeat, we can see his redemptive fingerprint and know that there is hope. And so we're called to trust the witnesses of that first Easter. We're called to trust the pattern of Easter. And finally, we're called to trust the scars. Scars are interesting because they they remind us of a bad mistake cutting an avocado or um, what have you. A bad day playing sports. A bad day at work. Whatever. Um, I'm still waiting for the pair of scissors in the side of my head never mind, just kidding I don't know where I was going with that the scars in our lives remind us of things that were painful that were threatening, that were troubling but once they heal that's all they are is reminders. And Jesus does something truly amazing as he comes back to his followers. He shows them his scars. And this group tells Thomas, who wasn't there, what they saw. And he's like, nope, ain't buying it. You're all crazy. You've all lost it. You had like a, you're like smoking peyote or something. I don't know what's wrong with you people, but that's insane. And I'm not buying it until I see it myself. And Jesus shows up a few days later and says, hey, Tommy, come here. Check this out. Oh, and there's one more. Put your hand right there. And Thomas has a complete shift In his faith, he goes from, "Uh uh-uh, no way, forget you, to my Lord and my God. He is stopped. The scars tell us that this is a God who has been there. Who's been through human suffering. And who even has been through human death a God who has lived where we lived, who has suffered as we suffer, and who died as we will die physically. But for a reason. The scars tell us the truth. And the scars tell us that this is a God who will always be there. He did not come back from the dead without the scars. He chose to keep them so that all who knew him would say, that's him. And he's not defined by what happened to him physically. He is returned to life in spite of what those scars mean. And he's given us hope and life. His scars remind us that he heals our wounds. And the scars tell us something else. That as God looks down on this crazy world... And he sees the, the suffering and the hunger and the pain and the sickness. He's not okay. He's not okay with the way this all plays out. He has come to do something about this world in which we live And he did. He showed up and he lived this human life. And he bears the scars to prove that he finished the race. But the scars also point to a God who will finish what he started. Who will make all things right. Who will finally take away sin and death forever, and leave us in a place of life and light and hope eternal. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we thank you for your word, that your word became flesh and dwelt among us, and that he chose to love us. Even to the point of death. And Lord, that your plan did not stop there. For you are the God of life, and not even death could stop your love from coming into our hearts. And so you rose from the dead, and you came to us, and you showed us the scars, and you taught us that you can be believed that your love redefines who we are and the world we live in. And Lord, we long for you to come and make all things right. But until you do, may we believe. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.